Ash, to be really frank, so many of the predictable deaths that happen in this country each year happen in an aged care setting. So there's around 100,000 predictable deaths and, and 60,000 of those are happening in aged care settings. So this industry is really key to the structural and the cultural change that, that's needed. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today we have a two-part episode with two great guests. With the help of Darren Evans from Aftercloud and Melissa Rita from the Violet Initiative, we'll be focusing on end-of-life care and how we can transform the final stage of life into a more positive and meaningful experience for everyone. First up is Darren Evans, who's talking about his company, Aftercloud, which has created a closed-group digital sharing platform for people at the end of their lives and beyond. Darren's got a lot to say about how technology can be used to enrich the final stage of life and provide a personalised and private digital legacy. Just before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, that's great because we enjoy making it. And the best way for you to support us is to share an episode with a friend or colleague and help us keep building our audience. If you're thinking of someone right now who might like what we do, we'd love it if you could send them your favourite episode. So, without further ado, here's part one of our End of Life double episode with Darren Evans. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Ash. Good to meet you. Yeah, you too. Now, you're here today to talk to us about Aftercloud, and I believe the story of Aftercloud starts with the passing of your mother-in-law. Yeah, that's true. Can you give us a bit of the the story there? Sure. Um, I was working in a corporate world, basically, just continuing in a kind of uh, professional capacity. And at the same time, we were looking after my mother-in-law, who had a very aggressive form of Lewy body dementia. Mm-hmm. We were caring for her, essentially, in the home, uh, my wife and myself and, and our son, uh, Dylan, who was 11 at the time. And um, it was very aggressive. So kind of six-month period, I guess, there was a, a very, very rapid decline. Anyway, post-death, I guess it was the first time, really, as a family unit, we grieved as a family unit. Mm. Although my wife and I had experienced death in the past, it was the first time collectively all three of us had experienced grief. And after the funeral, we came across a photo album. And whilst we've got lots and lots of wonderful memories, that was kind of all that was there in terms of her mum's legacy. We've actually found since two short videos, one of her mum dancing at a party, very short clip, 10 seconds there or thereabouts. And then another short clip of a few seconds of her kissing my niece's cheek, which we have. Mm -hmm. But that is the extent of the digital legacy of my mother-in-law. And it was my son, actually, Dylan, who was 11 at the time. You know, he said, Dad, you know, you work in technology. I've been working in technology in health and social care for about 20 years. And he said, look, can we not do something that will assist people, you know, in a similar predicament in in the same situation, essentially? So... That's where the light bulb moment happened, really, I guess. Yeah, that's fantastic. So it started as a desire to kind of allow people to make a more lasting digital footprint of someone's life? Yeah, I guess. I kind of, I, 
when Dylan mentioned this, my first instinct was, well, there must be something that does this already. Mm. And of course, there is you know lots of social media platforms, but they're all public. You know, they're 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 not secure. They're not they are secure, but they're not closed group setting in that sense. So, I went out and I spoke to lots of contacts that I've got right across health and social care. I spoke to hospices, various chief execs of large companies, and. What I found was there's lots of clinical systems in place that adopt clinical measures for patients, mm. but there was nothing really for individuals and families at end of life. And that was really where, you know, we kind of thought, ah, okay, then there must be some need and requirement here. And that's when we started speaking in a bit more detail to people and a little bit more research. Fantastic. And so what were the kind of early steps to, to developing the software and developing the, the idea? So really, it was a case of, okay, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to preserve memories, really. And we, I guess the, the initial notion was a, a digital memory box, if you will, because at end of life, and, and people in the palliative space will know that you create what is known as effectively a, a memory box, mm. cards for the future and, and letters and all these sorts of things. So the initial thought was, let's create a digital memory box that does a, a similar thing but digitally so that it can start to create this digital legacy of sorts. Obviously, it's evolved since then. You know, That was the initial thought. Mm, fantastic. And those things sound like on the surface level, they, they might be for the family of the person who's, who's passing away. But have you seen the people who are storing their own memories and their own data and they are also getting benefits out of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting one because what we found is two things really in that sense. One in the palliative space, we've seen it as very cathartic because people mm. use it for journaling, for storytelling, for telling their life uh, story uh, to their relatives, to their loved ones. But they found it of immense relaxation, actually. It reduces stress and related anxiety and therefore improves mental well-being. Mm because of the process that they're going through. What we've also found is that people at end of life don't necessarily want to admit that they are dying. Mm. They want to live moments. They want to live life to the full. And, and that's another benefit of it in that they can capture those moments and share that, that life story and the, and the things that they do in, in that sense with their family and loved ones as well. And then in dementia, what we've also found is that it's used, again, for, for journaling, storytelling, but also in related, from a practitioner perspective, it's used for art therapy, dance therapy, music therapy, reminiscence therapy, um, lots of different ways there that can be captured and then shared, again, with relevant stakeholders. It doesn't necessarily have to be family members. Mm -hmm. It can be shared in whatever capacity, but in the knowledge that is secure and closed group, I think that's really the important thing here. Yeah, can you give us some examples of the sorts of things that art therapy or reminiscence therapy, how they could be combined with the technology? Yeah, from a practitioner perspective, they can take digital stills or video of those sessions, those moments, those mm -hmm. elements of therapy, really. They can be captured. In the app itself, to create a moment, it's made up of multiple content types. So it's not just a still or a video or a, an audio, it's all of those things combined. Mm -hmm. So as an example, we've got an interview of, uh, of Nick and what he does is he's going through his photo album and he's taking a digital of the photo as a moment, mm -hmm. but then he's capturing his voice over it, explaining who is in that photo wow. and what's going on and the time and the period and, and all embellishing it really as a story. 
Yeah. And then he's sharing that for his sons. He's got two sons. He's doing that with his holiday pictures. He's doing it with planes that I know he likes. He, he's kind of a plane enthusiast. So yeah, he's embellishing stories in that sense. We've got other people that are sharing, you know, family recipes as an example we've got which i find fascinating we've got one guy who heads up a charity here in the uk and he's recently become a father mm -hmm. and he's got his wife to start recording moments of the baby mm. so where we started at end of life and palliative it's pivoted to be utilized in both palliative and dementia related services but now actually what we're seeing is because you're building um, a life story effectively digitally for your legacy it can be anyone of any age for any purpose and i think that's really where it starts to come to life this will probably be the first baby i think captured in after cloud yeah and you know what a, what a journey that's going to be yeah that's fantastic i was thinking that as i saw the person narrating over the photos it kind of brings those other memories to life doesn't it it breathes new life into those moments it really really does i mean if you can imagine everybody now pretty much everybody anyway will have their mobile phone on them. Mm. You know, if you're on holiday, you start taking photos. What I tend to find actually is most people will have a complete library of images and photos in their digital storage on their phone, but that's it. They're stills. They do enhance memory and they take you back to that point, but embellishing those uh, with, with voice, with audio, you can even dictate a letter in app. You can write or dictate. I tend to show people how to dictate because it's it's just so easy to journal then. But all of those things combined really do enhance that story. And I think the thing is, as we move forward, there are other plans in store for AfterCloud. But what we're effectively doing is that digital legacy for the individual can be told to future generations. Mm. Yeah, wow. You can imagine a situation where it becomes quite normal for everyone to have their own sort of digital archive that can be accessed or let's look at what grandpa's archive had in it and let's go back through that and hear his voice and you can really connect people throughout generations that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting thing actually, Ash. Um, we've just published a, a blog post, so our March guest blog post on, on AfterCloud and it, it's written by Dr. Elaine Caskett, professor. And she's uh, an expert, I would suggest, in digital legacy. Mm -hmm. And she made me aware of the fact that within five years, Facebook will have more memortialized accounts than it will have active live accounts. Whoa. Which I think is an astonishing fact within five years' time. And I, I can't speak for obviously other businesses and other companies, but uh, th th this is public setting. And when someone dies, you have no right or authority on that account. Mm -hmm. That's it, it's gone, it's closed, it's, it becomes defunct almost as a memorial kind of page. The difference being in AfterCloud is you can post to a future date. So that, going back to that digital memory box, it's there, but you can also post to the future. Mm. So if you choose a date in the future, um, we, we've decided as a business that we're limiting it currently to 10 years because I think ethically, we wouldn't want to go beyond 10 years. So. At the moment, we're thinking three, five, and 10 years mm -hmm. uh, for individuals to choose from, but that might extend as we progress. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you, you mentioned something before that I find quite interesting, the idea of audio. And I think for me, I, I have several audio recordings of really important moments in my life that I've taken without any video aspect of it. And I always find them to be much more immersive. I can imagine for some people that being able to hear someone's voice after they've passed away might be a really powerful a powerful thing to have at hand it really is yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because our strap line on the website is it's her voice I miss the most. I wish I could hear her again. And um, those aren't my words. They're the words of Roberta Ricella, who is on our advisory board. Mm. And she's head of quality of life of HC1. And HC1 are one of the largest residential providers uh, in the UK. When I started talking about AfterCloud at the very beginning, I wanted an advisory team that would help and assist me. And Roberta came to mind through another contact and, and we started talking and she told me her story. And... She lost her mum at a very young age, but she had a voice uh, recording of her mum from a voicemail mm -hmm. on a tape and she lost the tape recording. Mm. And I just, I couldn't believe it when she told me and I wrote it down hurriedly. It's her voice I miss the most. I wish I could hear her again. And, and that became, you know, that I asked obviously permission from Robbie and she very gladly said, yes, absolutely. Because it, you know, it, it is, people, you do miss someone's voice. And over time, it gets lost, I guess. I think that's the beauty, again, of AfterCloud is that nothing gets lost. It's held in the cloud. It's secure. And people can utilize it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we had Robbie on the podcast in the first season. I'm not sure what number episode. It might be number seven or number eight, but that's a nice little tidbit to add to her story there. She's great. She really is great. And as I say, head of quality of life, it's her passion it, it just comes to the fore when you you know when you talk to Robbie she's she's absolutely great similarly though on our board in fact we have Leroy William mm. who's president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Palliative Medicine mm -hmm. he's also an adjunct professor in two universities and just very, held in very high regard similarly Joe Wood who's a palliative social worker so you know, what we wanted to do was take best practice where we could uh, from an advisory team that could assist us now we, we've only had, I think, two meetings because we, we're still in beta and we're still essentially not. We are live and people can download the app and utilise it, mm -hmm. absolutely, but we've not really launched as yet as such. So we're in that cusp. We're, we're due to launch in June, but people can absolutely utilise the app right now if they wanted to. Fantastic. And having so many people with palliative care connections on your board, yeah. does this, do you feel like AfterCloud has the potential to, to change the way that people are thinking about the end of life or at least that the, in the way they're preparing for the end of life? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really essential that we as a society understand that death is a part of our natural journey. Gone are the days, that, of the Victorian days, where people, you know, dressed in black and you could see that they were mourning, right? Back in the day, people would close their curtains and you would know that house was in grief. Mm -hmm. We don't use those practices in modern day life now. You don't know if someone's grieving or not. And I think grief in the workplace is another issue in its own right. But yeah, I think what's happened in this COVID period has kind of made everybody aware of their own mortality. COVID has been presented to us by the media in a multitude of colours on the TV and made everybody, oh my gosh, this is real. This I could die. Mm. And it, I mean, you know, will writing has gone up. The stats show that a lot of people have, and certainly younger people, I think now, are a lot more aware of death itself. I think the more we can do to, I guess, raise the conversation and create that normality about death and dying and bereavement and grief mm -hmm. and all of the things that surround that, the, the better, really. And I think, in fact, one of our, one of our interviews with, with Tommy Dunn, who's a BEM for his work in dementia, you know, he raises that as, a, as an important issue in the fact that he doesn't think about it as death. It actually, what AfterCloud has allowed him to do is um, talk about it mm. with his family naturally rather than worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of the challenges of uh, 
kind of navigating is how do you speak about it in a way that's that doesn't feel too uncomfortable. There's a wonderful game that's been created by two ladies in the States called The Death Deck, mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic. But it does, it just, it helps and assists in raising the important questions, but in a sort of game scenario. And it normalizes the conversation. Mm. It's fantastic. It's actually being played online at the moment through, dare I say it, Clubhouse. But in itself, its own right, it comes in a little box called the death deck. Really fantastic. And it does, it helps to raise that conversation. And of course, if you can then utilize the app to start creating memories for the future or go back and talk about, you know, past history, mm. again, for future generations or right now for family and relatives and loved ones, then all the better. Fantastic. And looking to the future, what do you see? How do you see the end of life process changing for people? What, what do you imagine the, the next couple of years will look like in that space? There's definitely a shape shift. What we're seeing at the moment is a whole social movement coming to the fore in terms of a holistic end of life process. When I started on this journey, I've been working in health and social care, as I said, for 20 plus years, but my knowledge of end of life was quite limited, apart from death itself. But my knowledge of, I don't like calling it an industry, I'd I much rather it, we see it as a community. But death doula, the doula, mm. was a new word to me. I'd never heard it before. And, you know, there are soul midwives, soul companions, death doulas, end-of-life practitioners. And now, of course, I've had many, many conversations with all of these, what I consider professional practitioners. I'd like to see a certification process officiated, but I definitely see them being more involved in end-of-life care. We're on that cusp you know, just last week, Elvis Presley's granddaughter became a, a qualified, certified death doula. And again, that's raising the bar. It's getting it out there in the media. So what I see anyway is Canada and Australia paving the way. You guys are ahead of the curve. And I think you're, you've been ahead of the curve in, in health and social care per se, in terms of person-centered care. Mm -hmm. And I think you're also doing this now at end of life and showing others around the world how it should be. And I can certainly see the death doula space emerging and playing an important role in that end of life process or an assistive role in that end of life process. Absolutely. That was a word that was very new to me. And, and I learned that on the podcast as well about doulas and end of life doulas. And what's the sort of the treatment of assisted dying in, in the UK at the moment? Is that a legalized thing or what's the status? No, it's it's not legalized at all in the UK. Okay. Yeah. I know that it's changing in, in other parts of the world and again we may follow suit but currently no it's not legal at all in the uk okay in some parts of australia it is it's it's on a state-by-state -state basis but it, it feels like it's still quite a contentious issue here yeah and i i imagine in the uk it is as well if, if yeah very so. much so i think hospices in the uk do a fantastic job of managing in the life processes or, or you know or palliative care in the community over years in some instances but no i think that's I mean, that's an area that will legally need to be looked at. The one thing I think the UK does quite well is take a step back and look at best practice in other parts of the world and see how that unfolds. So I think that will probably be the same in that sense. Great. Well, Darren, I think we're almost out of time and we've got a lot of great information here about Aftercloud. Is there anything else you want to talk about today? No, Ash, you know, your questions have been great. It's been fantastic to be um, interviewed by you on, on the podcast. Um, I wish you every success with the podcast because it seems to be going fantastically well. Just to say that if people want to download the app, it's on the App Store, whether it's iOS or Android, uh, feel free. It's called Aftercloud. If you wanted to look at the website, it's myaftercloud.com. But apart from that, thank you very much. Perfect. Thanks so much, Darren. Pleasure. 
Well, a big thanks to Darren Evans from Aftercloud for that great conversation. Coming up after a short break, we have Melissa Reader from the Violet Initiative to talk about how we can eliminate regretful outcomes at the end of life. Melissa shares with us how regretful death adversely affects not just the community at large, but also how it particularly impacts on aged care workers and businesses. And that's coming up after this short break. You're listening to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. And we want to thank all of our listeners and subscribers, especially those people who've shared this podcast with a friend or colleague. Because of you, we've just entered the top 50 mental health podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and we're one of the fastest growing health podcasts in Australia. We're looking to take the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast to the next level by partnering with great organizations to showcase their message with our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. If you'd like to discuss what an advertising opportunity with our podcast can mean for your business, send us an email. We're at acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R adventures. Remember, there's no E in there. Now let's get back to this week's guest. Great. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And you're here representing the Violet Initiative. Can you tell us about the Violet Initiative? Yes, look, the Violet Initiative is really the new name for an organisation that's been around in Australia for almost 30 years, working at a very local level, supporting families and caregivers as they cared for people in the last stages of life. It was um, very community-led for a long time and, and what we did was train volunteer mentors and we, we helped them to go into people's homes and support those families and caregivers. And what they did was help with all of the non-clinical aspects of, of that life stage and, and end of life. So it was helping families with understanding and acceptance, preparation and communication. And, and actually what that group of volunteers did in a number of communities had huge impact. But what we could see from the board's perspective when we started to look at this in about 2016 was there wasn't enough scalability or sustainability in that model for an issue this big. Uh, So we spent some time together, had some good and courageous conversations, and um, we decided to really wind the operation down and figure out what was the good work that was being done by those volunteers in those homes with those families and caregivers and take that wisdom and practice and start to build a set of programs and tools and resources uh, and then start to scale that out uh, through partnerships and, and through technology. So it's been a lot of work um, over the recent years, but we really have got a business model now and a set of partnerships and and programs and resources that we think are are purpose fit, you know, for the size of the problem that we're trying to help with. Mm. And so what was it that brought you into this sphere, this end of life sphere? Uh, Look, it was really a a direct result of my own personal experience. So I have um, consultancies through most of my professional career and in a range of different settings, but I found myself in a really tough situation in 2011 where I was caring for my first husband, Mauro, where he was diagnosed very quickly and, you know, with enormous shock and surprise for our family with a really aggressive cancer disease. We were pretty regular, normal, busy, happy families. We had three young kids. One was only six months old. And his diagnosis just came at a huge shock. And I think one of the things that I found most difficult through the year and a half of his illness was the fact that we just couldn't talk openly and honestly about what was happening for him 
and what was happening with our family. Just couldn't have any of those honest conversations, not with our families, not with his medical staff, and certainly not between ourselves as husband and wife. It, it was incredibly tough. And I guess as I look back on the last stage of his life, the last months of his life, he endured many surgeries and treatments and spent a lot of time in hospital. And I think we may have made decisions differently if some part of the system had been able to really slow us down and help us make sense of what was happening and help us prepare for what lay ahead, you know, what was Mm. really an inevitability. So... He died in intensive care. Uh, We were very unprepared for it. Uh, He didn't have a will in place. All all sorts of things happened that really shouldn't have. Um, And it left me with a lot of regret about the way that that really could have played out quite differently. So it was really fortuitous that I was able to find this organisation and understand exactly the need that they were designing for, how you help people really understand the human and social aspects of the last stage of life and help people make better decisions so they, they really hopefully get better outcomes. Yeah, that's a, a powerful story and, and a really important mission there. And what was it that you set out to do with the Violet Initiative? What we've been really focused on, Ash, is is building um, a community support initiative that is driven by this problem that so many Australians just do not have the experience of the end of their lives that they would want to have or, or that, frankly, you know, they deserve to have. There's often a really big gap between what we would hope for and what happens. And in that gap lies a lot of regret, a lot of regretful outcomes where things don't go to plan or, in fact, there, there often isn't a plan. And the work that Violet's been doing has been looking pretty closely at the cost of regretful outcomes, you know, because they do cost us dearly as people within our families and within our communities, but they also cost us significantly economically in all parts of the healthcare system across a range of different businesses. It's a billion-dollar problem that we're facing in this country. We're, we're, We're managing that size of a problem right now, and that's going to significantly increase as our population ages. You know, there's so much that's changing in this area caregiver profiles, disease profiles, um, the number of people dying each year will double in the next 20 years. So that number, a mm. billion dollars, is is a significant one and it's going to get significantly larger. So Violet's work is to reduce regretful outcomes and to reduce the costs associated with regretful outcomes, both human and economic. We're making a positive contribution to the last stage of life in order to do that. So we're talking about the economic results of regret, This strikes me as something that people don't often associate with the end of life, that there is an economic toll here, a cost. Why do you think this has escaped attention for so long? I think partly the taboo nature of the topic contributes to that and there's a lot of behavioural complexity around the last stage of life and the end of life. It's much easier for us to stay in the mindset of hope and positivity. So they are things that we tend to kind of push to the side or push under the carpet. But a a large part of that cost actually sits in poor preparation and and poor planning for families Mm -hmm. and for individuals as as people enter the last stage of their life. And and it results in a, a lot of unnecessary, unwanted and unplanned time spent in hospital. The research tells us that um, that is not where we want to be, but we know that one in two people will die in hospital today. It's our least preferred place to die. And we're look, looking really closely at what the drivers of those regretful outcomes are from planning and preparation. You know, I think it's around 14% of Australians actually have sufficient plans in place for the end of their lives. It's a big part of the issue. 
but also understanding acceptance, you know, family dynamics. Very often uh, people are just not on the same page when they're experiencing this with a family member. There are very different views perhaps on what ought to be the approach to mum's care. For example, mum mm. might be 95 and, and actually very, very frail and, and actually coming to the natural end of, of her life. But the response might be, let's do everything for mum. So she finds herself in an ICU setting and not at all where she wants to be. So we've got really a big gap in the system around how we help people slow things down and, and gently and gracefully understand uh, the last stage of someone's life and actually understand the attitudes and preferences of the person that they're caring for and being able to advocate on their behalf um, to help them have the kind of experience that they would actually wish to have. Yeah, fantastic. And I can see that a big part of that would be in education, right, in saying that lives do end, like everyone's life comes to an end and acknowledging that there is a time to accept that. Yeah, look, education is absolutely part of it, but there are three really clear gaps that we can see in, in the way that this is currently being experienced. This is a life stage and we're very good as people in families and communities around designing, organising ourselves for other life stages. We know how to get the information that we need. We know how to rally people around us to help us through that. And I think birth is a very obvious uh, example and parallel but this is a life stage and as a society, we're just not very good at all at acknowledging it, at planning for it or, or talking about it. We don't do that sufficiently well. So Violet is really anchoring all of its work in the last stage of life. And what we're trying to do is build an organisation that over the next couple of years will become like a Beyond Blue or, or a Lifeline, you know, a national uh, support initiative that is a go-to for people as they care for loved ones through that last life stage. Secondly, we can see a really important gap around non-clinical support, the human, the social, the emotional aspects of end-of-life care. Uh, there's some wonderful work being done in the clinical um, spaces, but we can see a gap that sits alongside it that's actually a very natural and synergistic extension to good clinical care. We, we often talk about it as a parallel model of care, and, and that's where our work sits. And thirdly, we've always had a strong focus on the people who are caring for people at the end of life and in both informal and formal roles. So that's um, obviously the caregivers and the families, but it's also uh, really the workforces that do this caring work in healthcare, in aged care, and in a range of different settings. They have enormous impact and influence and agency actually over how that experience plays out. And they make many of the, the critical decisions that, that happen as part of that life stage, particularly as that person's health declines. Uh, but they're really underserved um, in the experiences we see it today. And quite commonly, these decisions come up at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. And if people mm -hmm. are not prepared for what lies ahead and for those really important decisions, things are rushed, poor decisions are made, and the care trajectory and the experience can start to take some very different paths. And are you taking the last stage of life to be when there's a prognosis reached or where are you defining that at? We've done a lot of work around defining the last stage of life with our um, really wonderful and very committed clinical committee. And where we've landed is it's, it's the life stage where someone is now sick enough or frail enough that they might die. And there yeah. are a range of different clinical tools and other methods that can be used to determine that. And, and often they are, but often that's not communicated 
to families or caregivers. So a large part of our work, particularly in aged care settings, is helping staff to use those tools more effectively and helping them to build their skills to have more capable and willing conversations with families and caregivers as their resident, as their loved one enters that last stage of life. Because if if they can be more aware and accepting and, and be much better supported and prepared as they go through that, they can make decisions actually quite differently. They can make the most of the time they have together and uh, they can really uh, be able to take the time to understand the preferences and the attitudes of the person that they're caring for so that they can help them have the experience that they'd wish to have. So Melissa, a lot of our listeners are in the aged care space, whether working for a provider or perhaps caring for someone themselves, what do these issues of regretful death look like within that industry? Um, Ash, to be really frank, so many of the predictable deaths that happen in this country each year happen in an aged care setting. So there's around 100,000 predictable deaths and and 60,000 of those are happening in aged care settings. So from our perspective, and I'm sure so many would agree and support my my reply here that this industry is really key to the structural and the cultural change that, that's needed. And as people are entering aged care, we know that they're now, they're entering later. Uh, they have higher levels of acuity. They have multiple comorbidities. So the data tells us that actually a third of residents will die in the first 12 months, you know, of, of being in mm. an aged care setting. So they're entering in the last stage of their lives. But Families and friends are often uh, really unprepared and unsupported and actually unaware of that. Uh, so that's where our early intervention approach is really looking at helping in terms of preparation. But the wider effects of this problem play out really significantly for the workforce. These are people that are dealing with death and dying every day in their work, and, and that takes mm. a really heavy toll. And I think we've seen in so much of our industry consultation, so many people do this so well today, uh, both businesses and, and individual staff and individual champions, but it's not codified, it's not done consistently well, and it really ought to be, considering how many of those predictable deaths are happening in this context. Staff, particularly those staff in kind of more senior roles, maybe senior RNs, or those that are having conversations with Families are managing really difficult dynamics and they're often managing up to five family relationships per resident. That's a pretty big job to navigate in addition to everything else they're doing. And, and what we're seeing is some really measurable outcome, uh, impacts rather on, on productivity and on resilience and engagement and often burnout. There was a piece of research that came out of QUT that showed 95% of aged care staff have experienced moral distress around end-of-life issues over 75% haven't been trained sufficiently wow. in this work. So it's, it's a pretty big and pressing issue and there's a lot of um, cost that sits within aged care that can be attributed to this. It's obviously come up in the Royal Commission a number of instances, a number of occasions and some very difficult stories. And it's also been prioritised as part of the recommendations to really increase workforce training in end-of-life care. So, again, Violet is really developing products and programs to assist with this and be able to scale the impact of that work nationally. Great. And these programs and, and offerings, what has the Violet Initiative got at the moment that people can access? We've got really two key products that we've been testing and co-designing uh, with providers over the last couple of years and we're now starting to scale out more broadly. Um, the first is through the Violet Academy, which is a range of workforce training programs that help 
build skills and capability in identifying the last stage of life and in better conversations and communications around the last stage of life. In doing that, in in helping people really lean into those conversations in a very open and honest and sensitive way, we also provide referral pathways into Violet for families and caregivers who, who often need more time and more support, which is beyond what's possible for that aged care staff member. These things take time and pace and specific expertise. So, so that's really the, the benefit of being able to refer families into us for deeper and more targeted support. Really interestingly, people don't tend to self-refer to what we're providing. It, it is very frightening to accept that the person that you love and care for is now in the last stage of their life. So the model is very much designed around these improved conversations where they're in trusted and authorised settings and then uh, direct and active referrals into Violet. Um, And and we've learnt a lot in terms of the market validation over the last 12 months that we've now got these programs being delivered in a much leaner way through to providers, so less time spent in the training, really through a masterclass model and, and less time spent out of their roles. So we're working towards a, a world where regretful death is not the problem that it is today. What does that world look like? Yeah, it's a really good question and it's a really big question and, and you can see that some cultures and, and some communities are able to do this so much better. For most cases, it's never going to be an easy thing. It's never mm. going to be an easy thing to go through, but it can be so much better than it is today. And communication is is core to that. Communication can change so much. Um, so I think there's great potential just for us as people to get better at um, the courage, I guess, the willingness to open up these conversations within our lives with the people that we love and and care for um, to try and start to normalise it. There's some great work happening both here and overseas by organisations who are driving that attitudinal change piece, you know, and and Mm. that that is going to take a long time. You think of a of an issue like racism, it's a, it's a decades long response time. What we've deliberately chosen to do is is to focus actually on the behaviour change that we think is required as people go through it. So it's quite a targeted model that we are actually there to support families and caregivers as they care for someone through that life stage and help them with those kind of anchors that help change their behaviours, improve their conversations and improve outcomes as they actually go through it. Melissa, this, is, this has been great and it's such a, an important issue to be talking about. I know that people can find out more at violet.org.au. Is there anywhere else people should be checking out to maybe the academy that you mentioned or some other resources they can access? Look, the platform, the website is the kind of the home of everything that Violet is doing and delivering, Ash. So that is definitely the best place to be sending um, families, caregivers or or organisations or staff that might want to know more about what we're doing. We're pretty active on Facebook and Twitter. We've got a large Facebook community and there's a lot of fantastic resources going out week on week. You know, we've got an Ask a Guide session now, uh, which is broadcast weekly, which captures the burning questions that caregivers are really grappling with. And our senior guides are giving some great advice. And you can just subscribe to that and get that in in your Facebook feed as soon as it's released. Perfect. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. And and thanks for all the information. Thanks, Ash. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for for the time. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it.
If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silveradventures.com.au. See you next week.